If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. The Forest Department had an elephant in what is now um, West Bengal in India that was allocated to East Pakistan. But the driver of that elephant <laughs> um, chose to remain in India. So that became that caused this huge bureaucratic saga about how this elephant would be moved and by whom to its new lodgings in East Pakistan. That was Kanishk Tharoor talking about the challenges of dividing objects during the partition of India. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll reach the 70th anniversary of the partition of British India into two and ultimately three separate states, India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. It's a subject that's getting a great deal of coverage on BBC TV and radio. And for this episode, we're going to speak to Kanishk Tharoor, presenter of the BBC Radio 4 series, The Museum of Lost Objects. An earlier series in 2016 collected objects that had been lost or damaged during the violence in Iraq and Syria. And indeed, long-standing listeners may recall that we featured that on a previous episode of this podcast. For the 2017 instalment, the Museum of Lost Objects team have moved their focus to South Asia, although they do make a couple of forays back to the Middle East. Here's a clip from one of the new episodes, entitled The Necklace That Divided Two Nations. This is Maruv Khwaja. He's the father of my producer, Mariam, and he reached Karachi in August 1947, just shy of his ninth birthday. When his family were waiting for a new home, they were temporarily housed in Jacob Lines, an ex-army barracks surrounded by a lot of tents. And in this line of army tents, we discovered stationery, things flying around, pieces of printed paper, wondering what the hell this is, and typewriters, rulers, boxes of pencils, pen holders, and pens. So these were then taken by the urchins of Jacob Lines, including us, me and my brother, and we would make raids and then take these pencils, hoard of pencils, and my brother did a fine piece of business with uh, selling these pencils and rubbers and all the things that an office would have. What we didn't know was that this was Pakistan's share of the stationery that were now dumped in these tents. And uh, what we used to do was to use them for sliding. We would climb to the top of the pole and then slide down because this was a beautiful 
sort of slide. And then when rain came, rain was horrible in Karachi because there was no sanitation at all. The tents were practically washed away, hundreds of tents. So all these disappeared. They were flying in the wind. In a time when countries carefully divided pencils and rulers, what do you do with the precious artifacts of antiquity? Now, I spoke to Kanishk down the line from the US a few days ago to find out more about the new series and how the history of South Asia has been incorporated into the museum. We spoke last year around the time of Series 1 of Museum of Lost Objects. Why did you decide to bring it back in 2017? We were really happy with the reception the first series got. And, you know, it was never, it was always kind of clear to us that these were issues that weren't going away and that the way in which we were looking at the politics of the present through the lens of the past was an approach that people found interesting, that people found as a sort of novel way of engaging with very emotional and often urgent issues in the present. So I think the approach in and of itself was uh, deeply relevant. And then secondly, we felt that we could take the series to other geographical areas. So, I mean, to be fair, we began this sort of second season, so to speak, of Museum of Lost Objects with a return to the same stomping grounds of last year, where we had an hour's worth of programming about Aleppo in Syria and Mosul in Iraq. Uh, but we felt that, you know, uh, that, that we could also take this approach elsewhere. And it so happens that my producer, Mariam is from Pakistan, I'm from India, and uh, we're coming up on to the 70th anniversary of India and Pakistan's independence from Britain. And we felt that knowing the way our countries work, that the Museum of Lost Objects approach to the politics of the past in, in South Asia was very appropriate. So it's unlike the last series, both you and Mariam have personal connections to partition on actually either side of the divide. Did this influence the stories you told and did it maybe even present any challenges putting together this series? I don't know about challenges. It gave us many opportunities. I mean, I think it was it's quite a thrill for me. My grandmother was a sort of participant and observer of many amazing events in the sort of early political history of India because my great-grandfather was involved in the freedom struggle. He was a prominent lawyer and a supporter of the Congress, Indian Congress Party. Um, and so as a result, was very much in contact with figures like Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, the first prime minister of India. So as a result, I have this resource in my grandmother who has all these amazing stories. And she's, you know, I grew up hearing these stories from her. And I always felt that they had to be recorded. So for me, at least, it was a great opportunity to to allow to get some of my grandmother's narratives into the show. We have an amazing account, uh, for instance, in the first South Asia episode of this season of when she was in Calcutta with her with her father, my great-grandfather, just before the time of, of, of physical independence. And as many of your listeners may know, um, around the time of what's called partition, when India and Pakistan were delineated by the British and made into two separate countries, this is in August of 1947, there was a tremendous amount of violence and upheaval with people on both sides of these new borders inflicting really horrific violence on each other and causing a lot of displacement. So she was in, my grandmother was in Calcutta at this time, and she saw Mahatma Gandhi there locked up in a house, being berated by displaced Hindus from what was to become East Pakistan, what is now Bangladesh, and trying to 
to mollify them, but because Gandhi was this figure who was preaching tolerance, who was preaching pluralism, who was preaching inclusiveness and defending India's Muslims, they would have none of it. And so he just put his fingers in his ears and in front of this crowd and backed away from them and sat down. He was so shaken and broken by what he'd seen. It's moments like that that Mariam's father himself experienced partition. He was a young boy when he, uh, his family moved from Delhi, which is now obviously the capital of India, to Karachi in Pakistan, which at that time was the first capital of Pakistan. And he experienced the bewilderment and strangeness of what it was like to have a country invented for you, to cross a border that didn't exist before, to to suddenly have your whole world turned upside down. So yes, we had these sort of very close family narratives that that I do think help adorn the larger story we're telling about South Asia and the way the past remains very much present for, for South Asians today. So prior to embarking on the series, did you have any preconceptions about the story of partition and was that changed at all by making the series? You know, partition, again, is a subject that's forensically dissected and debated and has been for decades in South Asia. So I feel I'm pretty much aware of the sort of broad sweeps of the arguments about partition and the way it's recalled. But what I learned in the process of making the series was details, details about partition that I didn't know. You know, in our first episode, we talk more specifically and more concretely about the way partition works. So you have essentially the assets of the British Indian state that had to be apportioned between two countries now. And that was done forensically down to typewriters and stationery. Um, and and then in more than this is beyond just, you know, land and people. But, um, but also there were things, I mean, one story which I had no idea about were um, there were uh, animals that had to be apportioned to each country. So for instance, the forest department had an elephant in what is now um, uh, West Bengal in India um, that was allocated to East Pakistan. But the driver of that elephant <laughs> um, chose to remain in India. So that became that caused this huge bureaucratic saga about how this elephant would be moved, be moved and by whom to its new lodgings in East Pakistan. So there were details like that, which I found quite, I mean, this is all part of the strangeness of dividing what had been united into two nation states. And the reason this fits in with very much what we're doing in Museum of Lost Objects is that a huge part of, of the creation of these two countries, India and Pakistan, was the invention as well at the same time of their senses of history and what belonged to them historically. So at the same time as you're having this sort of physical partition of state assets, of people, of geography, you're having a partition of the way Indians and Pakistanis think of their history and untangling in a kind of absurd way what is very much a shared heritage. One thing that comes through in the series is the incredible long cultural heritage of what is now India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Do you think that's partly been overshadowed by what's happened since 1947? Uh, yeah, that is a sort of inevitable consequence of creating nation states that try to manufacture their own senses of purpose and identity, even though in technical terms they're quite young. They've been created in the middle of the 20th century, and yet they need to, to justify themselves, they need to feel distinct. So, for instance, you had, in one episode, we talk about this necklace that was 4,500 years old. It was uh, an object from what's known as the Indus Valley Civilization, which is one of the oldest sort of 
urban, settled, agrarian and commercial, sophisticated civilizations that we know of in the world, sort of contemporaneous with, with Mes certain Mesopotamian civilizations, as well as China and Egypt. But this civilization was only discovered in the early 20th century in, by archaeologists. In any case, this is to say that this necklace got caught up very much. And the reason we, we focus on it in this sort of tug of war about of who, was it India or Pakistan, that could claim this civilization as their patrimony. So these young nation states that, are, that have just been born were wrestling over this necklace because this necklace would give them a sense of deep rootedness in the past. And this is the kind of contortions that all nation states make, not just India and Pakistan. This is this is true of all nation states all over the world. But in this sort of absurd moment, to be fair, they decided to just hack the necklace apart and give about 40% of it to Pakistan and 60% of the necklace to India. And um, it's, it's actually quite symbolic about the, the way we're just cleaving apart our history in order to have a sense of our own sort of integral nation state identities. So just to give you another example of, of the strange absurdity of the way this works, around the time of Pakistan's creation, because of the Indus Valley civilization being, many of its sites being found within what was to become Pakistan, you have books being published in the late 40s, early 50s with titles like 5,000 Years of Pakistan. So that is to say, suggesting that because there is this ancient history physically present in the contours of this very, very new nation state that's just been created out of thin air, basically, in 1947, somehow the nation of Pakistan has this integrity that goes back deep into time. And that's the kind of contortion that 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 this sort of nationalist myth-making can make. And it's very much in part and parcel of what happened in South Asia when they tried to apportion and allocate this history. In the other direction, many of the episodes take the stories then right up to the present day. To what extent do you think partition is actually still an ongoing story? Well, I don't know if partition is itself an ongoing story, but certainly many of the traumas around partition, the seeds of the violence that sort of sprouted horrifically in partition, those remain, um, you know, there are still what in South Asia we call communal tensions, that is, violence between religious communities that for political reasons is often stoked up. The, the truth is that you know, we have one episode that focuses specifically on partition, but then the other, the rest of our episodes tend to, to take on other issues that are relevant to South Asians today. But I think that there's, you know, partition is obviously a big thing, but there are generations now of, of Indians and Pakistanis who've grown up, and Bangladeshis as well, who've grown up in, you know, with very little memory of what happened back then, whose parents have very little memory of what happened back then, and who live at this point, these countries have been around for a while and they have a very clear sense of being, even though they continue to sort of to perform historical acrobatics. And so I don't know how much partition sort of looms over individuals in South Asia today as much as it might have 20, 30 years ago. That said, of course, it remains fundamental to ongoing tensions within the region, diplomatically, politically. And in Pakistan, do you still see violence against minorities? In India, there's still, unfortunately, violence against minorities, especially against Muslims. And so those 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 fundamental issues have not gone away. But I, I do think that, you know, at this point, 70 years is a long time. And partition itself... I think, has less of a hold over South Asians than it did before. Did you feel or see any similarities between the kind of stories you were telling for South Asia and those you were telling for the Middle East in the last series? 
Yes, yes, I do. But there is one big difference in that in Iraq and Syria, we were talking about a war and violence and 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 sort of horrific things that were happening very much then and then. And there was a kind of emotional urgency and immediacy to the stories in, in the Iraq and Syria episodes because we're dealing with people who have often very recently lost loved ones, who are telling stories about places that they have just seen destroyed, and who are very much in the midst of the horror and chaos of war, which is not the case in South Asia so much. Obviously, there is one of the people we interview in our episode about Kashmir is somebody who has experienced violence and been through chaos and so forth. So as a result, I think the way we did the South Asia series was slightly more concerned about the way history is used. We talk a bit more in this series with historians, I think more so than we did in the previous series, because we're also trying to show how you can't separate the meanings and histories attached to the objects that we discuss from the politics of South Asia in the present, whether that's the cinema in Kashmir, whether that's the uh, the, the last house in which uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, lived in before he died, um, that these places and the figures they represent, even though they're long gone, they're very much part of the way many South Asians think about the present. Coming back to the Middle East, quite a lot's happened even in the last year since you did the first series. Have any of the events on the ground actually affected the objects you covered last time round? Well, that's why we wanted to go back and we did. Um, my producer, Mariam, actually went to, well, she, she went to the north of Iraq. She went to Erbil and then sort of skirted around Mosul during the last bit of the fighting that's been going on there and went to the ancient site of Nimrud and so forth because we wanted to actually take the show physically to the places we've been talking about, even though it's still quite dangerous there. In our first season, we had, I think, a very powerful episode about Palmyra that featured the daughter of the archaeologist most identified with the preservation of Palmyra, who was killed by ISIS. And we had a very powerful interview with her. Since we did that episode, Palmyra was retaken by Syrian and Russian forces. Then it was lost back to ISIS and then it was retaken again by Syrian Russian forces. So it's still a very fluid situation there. And there has been more destruction of the city, of the ancient city of Palmyra, since we last covered it. And sadly, with Iraq and Syria, with the way things are, I feel we could do many, many more episodes about, about the destruction happening there. But we wanted to, to take Museum of Lost Objects elsewhere and see how we could take our approach to other subjects. Now that you have taken Museum of Lost Objects to a different part of the world, do you have plans to then expand it further? We'll see. I think we'd like to, but it's, it's not entirely up to us, but we'll see. We're, we're very grateful for the response we've got so far from everybody who's listened to the shows. We know we have a constituency of fans. So between our schedules, we'll see what we can manage going forward. For me, I'm, I, I'm a, I write fiction and I'm a journalist in my sort of other life. But for me, it's a great pleasure to, to do this work on the radio. It's been a pleasure to, to take my own interests in history and my, my sense of the urgency of history. People talk about how history, you, you need to know history because you, you, you don't want to, to repeat the mistakes of the past and so forth. But I've always just found history fascinating, often for itself and because it's urgent to people, because I think it shapes people's lives in the way they imagine themselves in the present. So it's been a great pleasure for me to, in a quite tangible, tactile way, even with all these objects, with all these these stories that we get to tell, to sort of bring that approach into radio in this very different form than I'm used to. So I'd love to keep on doing it, but 
we'll see. We'll see going forward if, if there'll be more Museum of Lost Objects. Your new series covers so many fascinating objects, but do you have a particular favourite? This might come across as slightly narcissistic, but we did one episode on the king I was named after. My name's Kanishk, but I was named after a king who's known as King Kanishka. And um, he's a fascinating figure. He ruled about 2,000 years ago over a territory called the Kushan Empire that stretched from about Central Asia to what's now northern India, with his capital in northwest Pakistan, what's now Peshawar. And, you know, he presided over this extremely interesting multicultural empire that, you know, I think your listeners might be fascinated to to learn about that was populated by people who had Greek heritage, um, Central Asians, Chinese, also Chinese travelers and merchants, as well as people from the subcontinent. Um, He was a Buddhist. He convened great Buddhist conferences. He built one of the tallest religious structures in the world. In any case, we we, we wanted to do an episode about him because in – and this is where it ties in again to the overarching political theme. The Kushan Empire is not really so well remembered in India. In fact, even though it's very much part of India's heritage, in part because we Indians sort of saw that the, the majority of these sites of the Kushan Empire were in what was to become Pakistan and decided that, okay, we'll just consign that to them and we won't really be invested in recalling this wonderful ancient, you know, Indian history of this fascinating polyglot multicultural empire. And I, named after this king of growing up, was always fascinated, fascinated by him and frustrated that as an Indian, I felt sort of denied the, the sort of patrimony of my own name, that that this man and his, his empire were sort of being apportioned to Pakistan. Um, in any case, so we, we talked to historians about it, as you as you hear in the episode. But I also got a chance because the object we focus on is something known as the Kanishka casket or the Kanishka reliquary. It's uh, a sort of bronze box that was discovered near Peshawar in, in the mound beneath what used to be a huge towering stupa the height of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Um, this box that contained or was thought to contain a crystal that had the bones of the Buddha in it. And on the outside was um, was a depiction of Kanishka himself. And I was allowed to go into the British Museum and to hold a replica because they don't have the original. And in fact, nobody's entirely sure where the original is of this box. And uh, that was quite a thrill to look at an engraving of the face of my namesake. And the, the, the box itself is fascinating. It's it's on the one hand, you have a very strong Buddhist motif with the figure of Buddha on it. Then you also have two gods um, from Iranian and Vedic cults, so Indra and Brahma, who represent a totally different tradition. And then you have all sorts of Chinese-seeming um, dragon motifs around the box itself. So, I mean, that box in and of itself contains so many of the traces that of, of different cultures that formed Kanishka's Kushan Empire. So this is all to say that that was a particularly fun episode for me to make and to relish and luxuriate in, in, in that physical object in the British Museum was great fun. Okay, Kanishka, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. Um, you've answered everything I wanted to go through. Is there anything else that we didn't mention at all that you think we should talk about? Well, I mean, I just just to say that you know, it's a in in this series we have quite a a mix of objects. So we have objects that are old, like a four thousand five hundred year old necklace, like this two thousand year old reliquary. But we also have, you know, one of the funnier objects we have that that's been lost is the Nobel Prize medal that 
Rabindranath Tagore, who who's a great Bengali writer and artist and philosopher, that he won in 1913 and became the first non-Westerner to win, to win the Nobel Prize. But that medal was stolen about 13 years ago, and, and we use that and, and the loss of this medal uh, as an excuse to talk about the importance of Tagore in the present. And we have a house that was the last house that Mahmoud Ali Jannah lived in. And we have the cinema, the in the Palladium Cinema in Srinagar. So it's, you know, our approach in this series has not just been to the ancient past. We have looked at uh, quite modern objects as well that are very, very tightly knit into the lives of people in the present. That was Kanishk Tharoor. The next episode of the Museum of Lost Objects is due to air tomorrow, the 28th of July, at 11am on BBC Radio 4. And you can listen to all the previous episodes from both this and the first series on BBC iPlayer Radio and internationally as a podcast. Meanwhile, you can read a piece on the partition of India in the August edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. This month's issue also includes pieces on Passchendaele, the history of witchcraft and the medieval Black Prince, among other things. Look out for our August issue in all good newsagents and in our many digital formats. And now it's time for this week's history news with our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn. Plans for a controversial sculpture at the medieval Flint Castle in Wales have been put on hold following complaints. Reminiscent of a giant crown, the 30 metre wide iron ring is intended to represent the connection between medieval Europe's monarchies and the castles that they built. However, More than 7,000 people have signed a petition calling for construction to be called off, describing the Iron Ring as, quote, insulting to Wales. Flint Castle was one of the many constructed by English King Edward I in the 13th century in order to cement his hold over Wales, and critics have suggested that the sculpture symbolises Edward's oppression of the Welsh people. In other news... Virtual reality technology has been used by the Royal British Legion to recreate the Battle of Passchendaele 100 years on. An immersive 360-degree experience has been produced using archive film footage and photography and can be viewed via virtual reality headsets. Historian Dan Snow has suggested that technology such as this could play an important role in, quote, maintaining the immediacy of the First World War for younger generations. Meanwhile, evidence of a Pictish longhouse has been discovered at Burghead Fort in Moray, Scotland. Experts believe that the fort was the site of an important Pictish settlement between 500 and 1000 AD. Alongside a stone hearth, a coin from the reign of Alfred the Great was also found within the longhouse's floor area. This find has helped archaeologists to date the longhouse, as well as revealing that those living there had connections to long-distance trading networks. Well, that's about it for today's episode, but do listen in on Monday when we'll be continuing our coverage of the partition of India. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. 
Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.